Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the Prince and the Press. The Duke of Sussex, aka Prince Harry, is taking the media to task over intrusion into his private life, which he claims crossed a line into illegality. He believes that Mirror Group newspapers, publishers of the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror and the People, publish details about his private life that could only have been obtained by hacking or other unlawful means. MGN is contesting the claim. More than 100 people in total are involved in the High Court action. Harris is just one of four representative cases being heard. He also has cases pending against The Sun and The Daily Mail's publishers. And in his statement to the court, he launched a broader attack on the press, warning that, and I quote, Democracy fails when your press fails to scrutinise and hold the government accountable and instead chooses to get into bed with them so they can ensure the status quo. That could almost be a mission statement for the Byline Times, which grew out of our executive editor Peter Duke's desire to tell the truth about the phone hacking scandal. We'll hear from Peter shortly. I'm also joined by Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu, who published an editorial applauding Harry for using his privileged position to speak out. Her view is endorsed by none other than Radiohead frontman Tom York. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep, which combines the best of our online offerings with content you can't read anywhere else. Get more details about subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well, our new film at Byline TV with John Sweeney, The Eastern Front, Terror and Torture in Ukraine. Watch that, as I say, at bylinetv TV. Welcome then to Peter and to Hardeep. Hardeep, why did you feel moved to write this editorial supporting Prince Harry, which I know has had huge amounts of support? I think it's such an important moment, Adrian. You know, Byline Times is funded by its readers, so we are independent. But when it comes to our founding mission, which is to scrutinise the established press in Britain, and hold them to account, which no other news outlet in the country is able to do or dares to do, we will take a stance. I think what Prince Harry is doing is to be applauded. It's only somebody in his position, with his level of wealth, with the fact that he is not scared of the press, tearing down his reputation. It's only somebody in his position who's able to bring this case to court. I mean, he is one of four representative claimants, but I think the symbol symbolic importance of who he is, the fact he is part of the British elite. And he is not only bringing this case in terms of alleged illegal activity, but also saying something much wider about journalism in this country, which the established press does not want to engage with. I think that is courageous. I think it is long overdue. And I think Byline Times completely backs his mission to try to save this profession. That's what he says he wants to do. And I think for a very long time, British journalism and its problems, they're seen as uh, historic. You know, we had the phone hacking scandal, the trials that followed that, the closure of the news of the world. But it's not really a historic issue. I mean, the methods might have changed, but the tactics really remain the same of these big tabloid groups. And so this is a very urgent problem. And what I really liked about Prince Harry's statements in court were 
that he was linking this problem in the press to problems with our democracy. You know, these two things are linked. It's when the political class and the media class get into bed with each other that you have a problem because then journalism isn't the fourth estate. It's not sitting outside and holding to account. It's part of the same cosy elite club. It's extraordinary to me that it takes somebody else in that elite to understand that and put that out there in the way he did that. And I think we should all tip our hat to him. Yeah, we sometimes forget, don't we? That is the fundamental job of journalism, to hold the powerful mm. to account. So rather than obsessing about his own personal alleged intrusions, clearly they are important to him and matter to him, but he has chosen to take this moment to make a stand more broadly, as it were, for the people of this country. Yeah, and a lot of the press we've seen in the last week, and it's going to continue going forward, it all attempts to make this about Harry and Meghan Markle and their personalities and their supposed hypocrisies and the way they live their lives and the royal family. It is all about that, which is so indicative of the very problem with the tabloid press that Harry's pointing out. So they're very much shifting the story always to that. Whereas the real story, beyond even the court case, which is about alleged illegal activity and news gathering, the real story here is about power and journalism and the relationship between these things and the public interest, which is completely, I think, forgotten when we have very wealthy proprietors who are advancing their own private interests in conjunction with politicians. And so whatever happens with the case, I mean, the judge will decide, we'll see. But I expect the attacks on Prince Harry and his wife to continue because he's saying something they don't want to hear and he's part of the establishment. And also, I think one of the reasons the press has so much power in this country is they can literally make and break reputations and careers. Recently, Philip Schofield, I mean, I'm not excusing his own behaviour, but the extent to which his story is entwined with the tabloid media in terms of building him up, bringing him down, you know, this is how it works. And so Harry sits above that. He's independently wealthy. He's not going to lose his reputation because of the sun and the mail. You know, he, he kind of transcends that. So in a way, it's, again, an indictment on the system that it, only he is able to do what he's doing, really, in the very public way he's doing and able to launch a wider campaign to reform the media. Actors, public figures are all part of that. But it's, there's something about him, I think, that both shows what's wrong with the media and how it could be a lot better. And Peter, this is where you came in to journalism a few years ago, trying to tell the truth about phone hacking. That's led to the creation of Byline Times. But the coverage of Prince Harry in this case suggests that there's been precious little self-reflection by the media in the years since then. Yes, isn't it interesting? Imagine 10 years ago, a like the food industry had been proved to contaminate their products and that maybe the curries or also pastas you were buying from major series of retail chains were poisoned or not fit for purpose. There would be a massive shake-up of the industry. There'd be a mere culpers, uh, people would resign, and hopefully the whole supply chain would be changed. That is what happened with phone hacking 10 years ago, and what happened? They did stop phone hacking, but they started new techniques, and they've just doubled down on the lies. It is extraordinary that any industry should have such lack of accountability. I mean, it's given away very, very clearly in the coverage, isn't it? 
there's the Mirror Group, supposedly a left-wing paper, and it was mainly during the senior editorship of Piers Morgan, alleged to have conducted lots of unlawful activities, getting stories. Now, they have accepted hundreds of these. What they've done is they pay people off before going to trial and say, look, don't go to trial, we'll pay you compensation. And it's not just phone hacking. We'll get to the other papers in a moment, allegations around them. Most people have to settle because if you go to trial, it is millions. It's millions to have this eight-week trial for somebody like Harry. And if you fail, you're liable for those legal costs and you don't get anything back. So Harry, along with several others, has said, I don't mind risking that money, I'll go to trial. So that's brave of them. Now, what do the Mail say? Their coverage of the case is like, the way they portrayed, like, Harry forgot one phone number. He thought it was hacked one time and he didn't have a phone at that time. They're thinking, they know they're misportraying it. It's like a criminal trial. He's on trial for his character. Now, I know something about this case. In fact, I put a witness statement about Jill Dando and the blagging of her into this case. And that's what I mean about blagging is getting people's private details, their medical records, their bank records, their credit cards. That's another level of privacy intrusion. Harry is not a witness to that evidence. He's speaking to the personal damage that is done. I've seen the evidence. Every allegation, and with him there are dozens of them, and hundreds in total, is backed up by the story first. A friend said, we hear, we understand sometimes quotes from voicemail messages then it's backed up with an invoice an invoice for that story to a private investigator that does phone hacking or friends and family or traces people down other forms of surveillance these cases aren't brought forward on the basis of one agreed prince and all the cases so far have settled but you won't read that in the papers why because the Murdoch papers, i.e. the Times, the Sunday Times and the Sun, themselves face a trial soon with Harry as one of the litigants. And the male group also, we wait to see the striker, face a trial potentially or cases of the same nature of getting personal details unlawfully. It's a cartel agent. So they're not a free press. They are like as we call them, the heads of the five families. They're bound in this empire of crime. If one breaks, he'll get a shot in the back of the head. Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes, you know what I mean? And it's just incredible how, rather than 10 years sorting this out, so many senior figures are involved across all the papers, quite well-known public names. All they can do is double down. And I think Harry is the beginning of the crack of that. You cannot hold reality back. I sense the People are much more aware. We have stopped the bribes to police. They don't phone hack anymore, but they still do not accept the other wrongdoing. It's really interesting, isn't it, Peter, what you say, because it's not a criminal trial. So he's not proving anything beyond all reasonable doubt. The judge will decide on the balance of probabilities. But all the coverage has been, oh, isn't Harry so stupid? He's given evidence and he's proved that there's nothing to back up his claims. And, oh, this is even more, he's trashing him and Meghan Markle's reputations even more. It's quite transparent that the attacks are all on that level. Again, it's all about this polarising figure that Harry is. But aside from that, it's, as Peter says, this is about alleged illegal activities, which may have disappeared from newsrooms now. But that doesn't mean there's not still a toxic culture, which remains that he's trying to highlight. 
So in the case of the Sun and in the case of the Mirror Group, nothing's yet happened with the Mail Associated Papers, but there have been hundreds of settlements. The estimate, if you put the phone hacking trial in there and other privacy claims, over a billion has been paid out in these cases. Now you can see the papers are worried about any admission of liability because of the ongoing costs. But it comes at that point, doesn't it, where papers themselves are struggling because of online stuff and they are desperate for support. So I think it's very much related to something you also write about and also have a submission to the coronavirus inquiry, the COVID inquiry, is these at least probably £200 million in bungs they got during COVID. Because we know they are paid vastly inflated salaries. Journalists don't play very well. You see something like the Telegraph. It really doesn't function economically. They're terrified of the costs of phone hacking. And so they're in a way out of desperation. All they can do is create the next prime minister. Mm. Now, they did it from May to Johnson. Johnson was their Telegraph prime minister. Perfect. And you'll see them try to do it again. Maybe they'll get another fat discount. Maybe they'll never get a COVID bunk. It's structurally, as well as philosophically and morally, broken. Some people would argue, well, this is historic. These allegations relate to activity that was going on some years ago. So why is this a live issue? Because we can take some more recent examples. I mean, Peter's mentioning politicians. I mean, we all lived through the Boris Johnson era of government. Partygate was a scandal that eventually did for him. The, the PPE contract scandal, the herd immunity, the fact that people were sent to care homes from hospitals without having any coronavirus tests, money that was being spent on wallpaper from God knows which donor. There were many, many things that Boris Johnson was insulated against because the press just didn't investigated. Partygate was when it all came to a head. In terms of celebrities, you know, I mentioned Philip Schofield, but Caroline Flack is really interesting in Harry's testimony that he mentioned her. I mean, they were friends. She was a TV presenter who committed suicide. Her mother has gone on the record to say that in large part, that was because of what was happening with the tabloids in terms of her life. She just could not deal with the pressure of what they were doing. Again, this notion of building somebody up and then bringing them down. So, I mean, there are other examples, but this is just a few instances of where we can see there are current problems with the culture. I mean, the unlawful activities, yes, has largely stopped the police bongs, which actually more egregious payment of public officials than phone hacking. And there's more to come out about phone hacking. It was going on, I understand, even during the Leveson Inquiry, and even members of the DCMFs we've written about, one of them, maybe others, were hacked by News International, they alleged News UK, while they were covering it. But the wrongs a paper can commit shouldn't just be measured by criminality. So Harry says that he felt there was a portrayal of him and Meghan, there was a kind of threat to his life, people thought it was so bad. And obviously, we see the case of his mother. Well, we know she was hacked, by the way, but she was driven to her death by an incompetent driver while hounded by paparazzi. I think we see the same in the monstering, for example, of Muslims, of trans people. There is a field day the press has, which isn't regulated against by if so. You are allowed to say racist or objectionable things about groups. It's only individuals get protection. And this does lead to serious harm. And there's a serious harm having a lying press telegraph falling apart pushing forward only two days ago laundered coronavirus theories from the IEA that oh only 1,000 nearly 2,000 people were saved by lockdowns that kind of nonsense 
could cause serious harm without it being criminal. And it's just a very toxic culture. And whenever we go abroad, don't you? You go abroad, you were talking to some Italian journalists today, Kardeep, they are amazed at our press. Because it comes down to ethics, which is what you're talking about, Peter, which is what Harry is trying to raise. And I think that's the interesting point. I went on BBC Radio 5 Live to talk about the Harry case. It was great to be invited on. And I was asked why I thought it was such a interesting moment and I said well he's the first senior royal to give evidence in 130 years to a civil court but also he's saying this is his mission that there's something wrong with the ethics of journalism the wider culture that we need to look at and the very nice presenter said immediately but that's not what this is about it's about the court case not about the culture of the press and I said well in my opinion it should be about both We do need to have conversations about the culture. And it's really interesting. I mean, it's something I think, Peter, you'd be good to answer to. Again, the reaction this week from people like Andrew Neil and not only the Daily Mail or the other tabloids is, one, this is a historic problem. But the other argument that's consistently put forward is, what's Harry moaning about? Because our circulations are dying. The thing he has such a problem with, that traditional newspaper industry is dying And we don't have much influence anyway. No one's buying our papers. So you can't say to us that we have all, they're putting the strings behind the scenes. It's nothing to do with us. But it's such an insidious argument, isn't it, Peter? It's the have it both ways, isn't it? And so don't, the bullies, as as actually happened at most, Martin Mason did a cartoon for us on this, that we were threatened with legal actions by Dacre. And we had this picture of Goliath and a small David byline. This is six, seven years ago. And they could going, stop bullying me. And the reality is we know that the Telegraph, for all its hardest financial problems, is worth 500 million. We talk about these COVID bungs. We think they're up to hundreds of millions. Just so yeah. we explain the COVID oh, yes. bungs, this was money given by the government to newspapers to help them get through the pandemic because of the problems people had with getting out to buy newspapers. And the papers were expected to put out government messages in return. So, I mean, they weren't overtly COVID bungs. No, it's Dominic Cummings, the senior number 10 advisor, described them as in the room when Johnson was talking to, he described as his real boss, The Telegraph. And we're putting forward evidence to the COVID inquiry and that. And of course, it didn't go to all newspapers. It went to the NMA, which is the IPSO-regulated Big newspapers, includes The Guardian and The Independent, as well as The Telegraph and The Mail and The Sun. And their subsidies was even better because they got a VAT exemption on all their advertising and online revenues. That is probably about $2 billion. That was directly lobbied for through the Culture Secretary. So the idea they're poor, the idea they are suffering and should leave them on, is very contradictory. Local journalism is suffering. While the head of Reach is closing down all these local journalists, the big group that owns the Mirror and most local papers, he's on four million. We know what some of these colonists are paid. And I think the most fascinating thing is the assertion of power and the denial of it. This is what William Baldwin called power without responsibility. And a speech partly penned by his cousin, Rudyard Kipling. Now, when you were on Radio 4 Media Show, you were with Fraser Nelson, weren't you? And you were talking about similar things about a year ago. 
And Fraser Nelson, you couldn't see him on the radio, but you told me he was laying back in his office, legs up in the air, but you could hear I don't know if I remember the legs in the air. (laughs) Well, I mean, on the desk. (laughs) Yeah, legs on the desk, but he sounded very relaxed. Uh, It's so ridiculous. I can't do a Scottish accent. We have a very small circulation. You know, we're a tiny in-house magazine. You think we're going to change politics? What are you talking about? The editor of your paper became prime minister. That seems to be the issue. So on one hand, their argument is we don't have much power. Where the free press, that must be protected. But we don't have much power because our circulations are going down. So this is all misplaced. But the other side of what we're saying is it's not about circulation. It's not really about the relationship between these newspapers and the public. It's about the relationship between these newspapers and people in power. And in terms of that, there's a very close proximity. That bypass the public completely. That's what we're saying is the issue, but that is harder to get across to people at large, I think. And there are two strands to that, aren't there? One is the what the papers say coverage, which is featured both, say, on BBC Mm. Television News and on Sky News. So the front pages of these supposedly powerless little newspapers actually is agenda setting. It's then picked up in both national and local radio as talking points. So if the Institute for Economic Affairs has a particular bee in its bonnet, that might make the front page of the Mail or the Telegraph. That might then roll out to become the day's big talking point on Jeremy Vine or even an LBC. These things are all possible. In the recent print edition of Byline Times as well, there is an article about unminuted meetings between various newspaper groups not byline times, not even The Guardian, but the usual right-wing suspects having meetings with cabinet ministers that are not minuted. So why are cabinet ministers meeting these newspapers? Why aren't these meetings minuted? We just don't know. I mean, if you look to the volume of meetings, especially as Sam Bright had written this piece after this crucial bit, which Baroness Hallett is looking at when they didn't go for the second lockdown, there's no other industry... Newspapers aren't a huge, they're not as big as aerospace or the car manufacturing, let alone financial services, they meet as often. So it proves exactly Hardy's point. From a politician's point of view, at the time where politics is show business for ugly people, they need the media, they feel the media can make a break them. And this has become the last, I think, source of revenue or, or purpose for the papers. Of course, they're great journalists, even in the mail even in the Mirror Group, who will do these amazing holding politicians to account. But often they don't, and often they are blocked. And people will leave and tell you they were blocked, even in the BBC, for doing these things. So what is the purpose of these media organisations? To make a profit? Well, a lot of them aren't. So one can only presume it's going back to that 19th century model. Because the first time newspapers came profitable was at the Times in 1850, and it could be truly independent of a rich proprietor because they could make money from advertising. Google and Facebook have killed advertising, online advertising, sucking it all away from publishers. So it's an influence machine. You get a paper, maybe you want a lordship in the resignation honours list. You could be baron of, I don't know, Hammond Siberia or something like that. Or you could be Lord Dacre. Maybe it is that sense of power. Obviously, Rupert Murdoch wants to make a lot of money, but he also enjoys being fated by prime ministers and presidents, the 24th member of the cabinet, if he wants to go to war on Iraq, all but one of his 160 papers will run with that story 
and he'll get what he wants. So what is media for now? Elon Musk, just to prove that it's not a problem of the papers. Why does a billionaire want to run and lose money on something like a free speech space for journalists and investigation like Twitter? He wants to own the world. He wants to be listened to. He wants to be respected. The only answer to that, and we're going to have this issue with the Telegraph, is there should be no monopolies in big tech. There should be no monopolies in papers. They nearly stopped Murdoch taking over the Times. It's a real shame. John Biffin, the trade secretary of the Times, said it was wrong. Thatcher got that through. And then you got the beginning of this rot where it is just a player for billionaires and oligarchs. Worth noting as well to finish off this podcast that Leveson 2, of course, which was going to investigate many of the things that we are discussing, the relationship between the press politicians and the police, but particularly from the perspective of this podcast, politicians and the press. Leveson too was scuppered. The press mm. managed to stop the government's investigation or Leveson's investigation into exactly the kind of links that we're discussing here. Yeah, and that's the other reason I think, Adrian, that I felt it was important for Byline Times to put this editorial out as Harry appeared in court, because these problems are deep-rooted, they're structural, and there's no guarantee that a change of government would solve the issue, because Keir Starmer's Labour Party is swimming in the same waters as the current crop of politicians who are in charge who shelved the Leveson 2 inquiry. So the question really is, what will fundamentally change? So while Prince Harry has opened himself up to hours and hours of answering questions, detailed court statements, none of the reporters or the editors that he alleges were doing this unlawful activity have answered in court or provided any notion of transparency or accountability. And just to pick up lastly on what Peter was saying about power, I really liked that Prince Harry mentioned journalistic privileges in his court statement. I think privilege is a word that is attached to both politics and journalism, many other professions too, but journalism and politics being the two primary professions which impact our public life. I think positions in both of these professions are a privilege and a responsibility of the highest order because of the potential influence they can have. And I think in this country, all too often, they have become completely divorced. And I, to this day, do not understand how what we all do is nothing but a privilege and a responsibility. And the problem is, it's just not seen like that. And so this issue of the British established press is a current one. It's an ongoing one. It's actually one of the biggest scandals and stories of our time. And I think if Prince Harry, whatever happens, can just do a little bit more to bring awareness to a wider group of people about how this might be impacting their lives, that can only be a good thing. I know it's a story we'll continue to cover in depth at Byline Times. Thanks to Hardik Matharu. Thanks to Peter Jukes. And don't forget, this podcast is supported by subscriptions too. The Byline Times, which, as I say, is a wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep. Do get a subscription if you can. Head over to bylinetimes.com for more details. And if you're listening to this before June the 14th and you live anywhere near London, don't forget at the Prince of Wales, just off Leicester Square, we've got the premiere of John Sweeney's fantastic film with Caelan Robertson and Zarina Zabriskie called The Eastern Front, Terror and Torture 
in Ukraine. Head along to the premiere if you can. If you can't, you can watch it at byline.tv. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This has been a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.